Oh, hello. My name is Kate Bowler, and this is Everything Happens. There are some people who are just lean-in kind of people. They're the ones who don't balk at your unanswerable questions. You know, the ones you asked during college at maybe 2 a.m. that you feel a little embarrassed about wondering still. These are the people who don't shy away from your unsolvable issues, who show up on impossible days, in the hospital, at the funeral, at the court date, who allow us to show up as our full selves, the people who walk with us all the way to the edge. These are the kind of people who really understand the practice of presence. And it's something I really hope that, wow, I mean, that we can just all really learn to do. How do we create spaces of deeper belonging and friendship when the people we love don't always have easy to solve problems? And how can we learn to stand with them in uncertainty, in the mystery of it all? My guest today lives this out so beautifully. John Swinton is professor of practical theology and pastoral care at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. And he's the founding director of Aberdeen's Center for Spirituality, Health, and Disability. He worked as a nurse for 16 years in the field of mental health and learning disabilities, and later also as a community mental health chaplain. I just feel so grateful to get to sit down with him as part of Duke Divinity School's Theology, Culture, and Medicine Certificate Program, which is this program that creates opportunities for students and clergy and healthcare practitioners to come together and reimagine contemporary practices of healthcare in light of the Christian tradition. He is an absolute dream. You're going to love him. Here he is. John, I can't believe we get to do this. I, I get know. to see you in your real life self. Yes, and me to see you. <laughs> do you mind taking me back to the Ursource, um, the beginning of John? Because you are this uh, combination of professions that I find deeply compelling. You're a th- you're a three in one, uh, real trinitarian setup. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So how how did I become who I am? Yeah, you you started one thing and then became another. I did. Well, I started life as a van driver. Did you really? I did. And I really liked that, because like, it was probably the best job I ever had, because you've no responsibility. You just pick up your stuff and then drive around the northeast of Scotland, <laughs> go back to home. But you have to think about anything. That's great. Um, but you maybe didn't want to do that forever, but it was fun. <laughs> anyway, this, so I began my, my professional career as a, as a nurse. So I trained originally in, uh, in mental health. And I worked in psychiatry for a number of years, and then I retrained in the area of intellectual disability, which then was mental deficiency, then became mental handicap, then became learning disability. These, it's very significant that these names change all the time yeah. according to cultural expectations. But anyway, now it's intellectual disability. And I worked in, for a total of probably 16 years oh. in there. Uh, and then I, I uh, decided I wanted to train for the Church of Scotland ministry. Because I thought I was going to be a, a hospital chaplain. Yeah. Yeah, because my father was a hospital chaplain. That's not to say that hospital chaplaincy is uh, genetic. It just happens to be that <laughs> it, was, it was always there. It seemed like a, like a natural thing to do, to move from a healthcare background into uh, chaplaincy. And I did work in chaplaincy for a while. But as soon as I got into the university, for whatever reason, I knew that I wanted to teach practical theology. It just, it just gra- grasped me straight away. I'm not quite sure why, but it just you, you find your vocation sometimes and that's it. Yeah. 
Uh, and along the way, I became ordained in the, the Church of Scotland. Uh, and I worked as a mental health chaplain for a number of years as well, alongside of my PhD. And then I uh, became me, <laughs> whatever, whatever that, that actually <laughs> means. You're like, and that was pretty much the three tributaries of me. Exactly. To be a nurse and to be a theologian and to be a pastor. I mean, one of the things that strikes me, especially about meeting you in real life, is you understand the deep art of presence. I always notice when I, I always kind of know when I meet a person who's been a nurse right. or is a nurse because they, um, uh, they just, uh, they have a way of standing there yeah. and not shirking from the awkwardness of suffering. Because mm -hmm. you obviously are someone who, who leans in. Uh, I suppose you, you do learn that really, because, particularly because of the kind of career route, if, if you like, of vocational yeah. route. I have. So when you're with people, with, particularly with people with intellectual disabilities, profound intellectual disabilities, if you're not there, you're really not there. Because the only way that you can be with somebody is by, by being present, like in that sense. And to be present means that you have to put to set one side a lot of the cultural assumptions you have. Because look, the way in which we normally make sense of one another as human yeah. beings, it's through a process of mind reading, right? Yeah. So I'm looking at you, right? And uh, I'm kind of trying to work out how you're thinking. You've got a fairly friendly face on just now. You've got a very friendly face <laughs> full stop. I have a very little on the prairie set up. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, so, like, so I think, well, maybe she likes me. At least she's not going to be hostile towards me. Yeah. Like. And so I make that decision. Then you communicate accordingly. Um, but when you have people who have difficulties in communication, yeah. that goes out the window. So how do you, how do you make sense of yeah. uh, somebody that has no words and that you, you really can't mind read in that sense? So you have to learn just to be, that you don't do anything, just just be there. Like. And I suppose that that's part of your formation as a, as a nurse, and maybe as a chaplain as well, that you just learn to, to be where you are. Yeah. yeah. I have a lot of questions about how we create the sense that other people belong where they are. And you've had formation in two very distinct uh, institutions that are supposed to create it just naturally that uh, maybe we could start with the church. The church is, um, I mean, is inherently designed not to kick people out. It is meant to be an inside out institution in which the very weak among us, the very, yeah. the, I mean, scripture is very clear on who we are meant to care for. The, right. the fatherless, the imprisoned, the how has the church been a complicated place of belonging, especially for people with intellectual disabilities? Well, first of all, I completely agree with you that in principle, that's the way that it should be. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it is that way. But the problem is that uh, the church-like society has a particular value that it places on intellectual activity. Yes. Right. So if you meet somebody for the first time, the chances are you'll ask them what you do. Yeah. And then you'll put them in a hierarchy. And normally it would be a brain surgeon up here. And normally it would be somebody that doesn't think down here. Because culturally that's, that's the way we prioritize things. Um, so we're fascinated by intellect and reason. So therefore, when you encounter people who don't have the ability to communicate or to be in that way, then it's a problem for you. Because culturally we think that's the essence of being a human being. Yeah. Now, if you transfer that into a theological context where you begin to say things like, um, you have to know this in order to be saved, then what happens to people that can never know things? Or worse, or not worse, but what happens to people who knew things and then have forgotten things? 
And so that kind of intellectual rationale for the, being the nature of faith is highly problematic for people with intellectual disabilities, but also highly problematic for people with dementia, for example, who are beginning to lose these things. And so whilst the, the church as a community of the friends of Jesus should be a, a welcoming place in the way that you describe it, sometimes the way in which we construct our theological understanding is even though something as, as important as salvation, i.e. being with Jesus, uh, as a blockage. I know you might not articulate it that, in that way, but in your mind you may well, many people think it in that way. And it comes to fruition when people are, for example, not allowed to take part in the sacraments or not allowed to be baptised and these kind of things. So it can be tricky. of faith is such a big part. or Exactly. I have yeah. thought about, so you've written so many beautiful books and I have uh, cherished the crap out of them. And I promise I always credit you. <laughs> I have never heard I, that expression before. That's great. I'm going to take that home. <laughs> but I find myself arguing. I was like, as my friend John says, I had this argument um, maybe a month ago. It was with a very high capacity government official. And he was uh, describing his great fear of uh, dementia yeah. and losing the ability to tell his own story. And he immediately said, well, I would, you know, and then these were like very intense desires to take back control over um, what end of life would look like right. for himself because he was so scared. And I was like, as my friend John says, yeah. but the argument that I thought was so beautiful about whether primarily as a Christian or as a human being, our fundamental job is to tell our, to articulate our stories in a convincing way. And then you have this lovely account of God as the one who mm -hmm. holds our story for us. God mm -hmm. is the one who, as he gathers yeah. us to him, like, is like, Shh. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I am holding all things. Exactly. I find that so deeply compelling. Yeah. I mean, for the last, not just for that, what do they call it, uh, dotage, like the last, the yeah. more puttering years, but for the, the, for, for anyone who yeah. worries that they lose, that in losing the narrative that we fully lose ourselves. Yeah. No, I completely agree with that. And one of, one of the interesting things about the way in which the writer to the Hebrews describes faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you cannot see. Now, that's a very different understanding of faith from the yeah. way that we culturally oftentimes think about that. And I, and I think that's important because, for, for two reasons. One, in relation to memory, memory is pretty fickle, yes. right? So I'm thinking, you know, I, was a, I was a latecomer to the faith. I was in my 20s when I became uh, a Christian. Uh, and right up to then, I thought, yeah. ah, you're quite a decent guy. You, you live a pretty good life. Like, yeah. And then suddenly I discovered I'm a horrible sinner and <laughs> fear of condemnation. Like. And so like everything I thought I knew about myself turns yeah. out not to be the case. And, and memory functions like that. You, yeah. your memory is always very selective. And if it's what you remember about yourself uh, uh, that counts, then you're in big trouble right. because you, you actually don't remember what you think you remember. Like, and so for me, the important thing is to, to take seriously what Paul says, you know, you find your identity in Christ. Uh, it's not, you don't find your identity in your neurology or in the things that you can or cannot do. You find your identity in Christ and your identity in Christ is hidden, yes. Paul says in Colossians. So you never really know who you are. And so you're not in a position to say that person is not the person they, they, they used to be because you don't know who you are yourself and you never will do until it's revealed to you. So it's always God's memory that's important. So we might forget certain things, other people might forget certain things, but it's, if God remembers us, then we're held in the safety of that.
And that's really important from a pastoral point of view, because if faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you cannot see, then that's how I have to look at you. Yeah. So you may have all sorts of brain damage. You may be struggling to do all sorts of things. But if I'm looking at you for faithful life, being sure of what I hope for and certain of what I cannot see, then that completely transforms my understanding of who you are and how I should respond to you. So the theology and the practice around that are just profoundly important. John, I think that I got my theology of hope from you, from a book. I really, when, when people say, well, then what is hope? Because I usually have a life I can't fix. And um, in the certainty paradigms, then I'm supposed to produce a certain kind of... <laughs> just, I should die very politely in faith. I mean, <laughs> just sure of so many things. And I, I always find myself saying, and I'm almost... <laughs> Awesome if it's from you. I say like, hope is a long story, but it's the story God's telling us about us. Right. I mean, and it's not contingent then on my ability to. Yeah. Certainly not my ability to control. Yeah. And I just and I love that it extends then to even our ability to do the thing which we imagine self-expression does, which is yeah. that each of us are tell the good story. Yeah. Exactly. You didn't get that from me, but I'm happy to I'm take the glory. Pretty sure I did. Did you? <laughs> I mean, it sounded like something I would say. It so is it's... something you would say. <laughs> but I'm getting old. I don't remember. <laughs> You're like, that's what happens when you write a lot of books. It's probably somewhere near the back. <laughs> exactly. Suffering or undoing, or a feeling of incompleteness. For some reason, I always think of like a um, businessman rushing off to an important job, eating an artisanal salad, like that that is our image of a fully formed yeah. um, heroic individual, yeah. at least in North America. Um, if we're not that self, how does the church, how can the church create more a generous place of belonging for all those of us who will not bring in that kind of um, yeah. heroic individual. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that the place to begin is with the relationship of friendship. Because yeah. I think, you know, one of the most radical moments in John's Gospel is when Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends, right? And so God who creates the universe, who comes into the world um, uh, calls his creatures friends. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if we take that seriously enough. Like. <laughs> You're like, no, 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 friends with the, you know, <laughs> the person that said I'm trying not to fall into modalism here, but like <laughs> the savior of the world, you know, but like buddies. Meet my mate, God. Yeah, save the world. It's no big deal. <laughs> my daughter would love that. I'm going to take that. <laughs> the, um, so, yeah, like, so, the, so the church then it becomes, uh, to be a disciple is to become a friend of Jesus. The church becomes a community of friends. But then you look at the friendships of Jesus and they're really different. Like, so my Facebook friends, of whom I have many, I don't you know, <laughs> of whom I, don't I know, know if you know that, but I'm really popular on Facebook. <laughs> I can prove it, screenshot. Um, the problem with Facebook friends is, you can get rid of them very easily. Yeah. And most of your Facebook friends are, are very similar to yourself. Like and so the people that are not like yourself, you just get rid of them. So you've yeah. got this lovely cluster of people who just look like you, it's like looking in the mirror. And we kind of do that in real life as well. Yeah. The thing that's startling about the friendships of Jesus is that they are 
uh, not marked by the principle of like attracts like, but by the principle of grace. That like attracts those people whom says it's unlike you, so tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. Not reformed tax collectors, sinners and prostitutes, but people who are just doing their thing. And it's through that friendship that they, they begin to encounter who, who Jesus is. And I think that's the heart of belonging, recognising that we are, as a church, the community of the friends of, of Jesus, and that Christ-like friendship doesn't look like the, the kind of friendships we're used to. Yeah. And that's the radical edge, I think, in principle, that we have to offer to the world in terms of belonging, because that's when we really, people really can find a space through that kind of relationship. When that, when you describe that kind of unlikeness and the way that it forces us to belong to each other, thinking of my friend Roger, who passed away a couple uh, last month. He was the librarian here at the no, Divinity School, and Roger and I didn't have that much in common. Um, he was a librarian and liked being a librarian. I liked uh, running around and talking about American religion. And we had very little to chat about, except that uh, Roger showed up for every small act of picking me up from the airport when I need to go to the hospital, right. making sure the sign-up sheet for food that I didn't say that I needed, but definitely yeah. needed, was filled in. And the unlikeness that became the most um, stable part of a very unstable time yeah. is I couldn't have gotten that if I hadn't been part of a church yeah. that was committed to me in a way that like yeah. guy at the grocery store was never going to be committed yeah. to me. Yeah. He like made some kind of weird covenantal promise at the beginning of time to <laughs> actually care about my stupid problems. Uh, <laughs> like when we belong to each other, yeah. it's a lot of work. Yeah. It's sort of horrible. Yeah, it's sort of horrible. <laughs> but, it, but there is great power in small things, isn't there? Like, I think that transformation and change isn't necessarily a huge thing. I mean, we're not called to transform the world. That's God's job. But we are called to transform ourselves. Yeah. And oftentimes transformation comes through these small gestures yeah. of hope that enable us to find belonging. So I, I think that's a great example. The other institution that is near and dear to you and me by extension, <laughs> less dear to me, is the hospital. And I oh, wonder yeah. if we could talk about the um, healthcare institutions as another place that the that people who are in need are supposed to belong. It is a strange place to be vulnerable, though. What is it, do you think, about the way that we imagine disease or illness or just the way hospitals are set up, that it, it, is, it is almost hard to imagine walking in there for, in a posture of vulnerability. Well, I think at least part of the issue is because hospitals are set up to fix things and to solve problems. Yeah. And I don't mean that necessarily because yeah. we want everybody we wants want that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. yeah. But if, if the primary focus of my relationship with you is just to fix a part of you, then that's the part I'll look at you. Yeah. So I'm not going to be particularly interested in what's going on elsewhere in your life. I'm, I'm focusing on there. So the, the, the specialisms that's within medicines are, are, is necessary. Of course it's necessary. You want experts to be uh, expert in different parts of your body. But the danger then is that you actually lose the big picture oh. in, the, in terms of the way that you think about people when you, when you encounter them. And so you're so much so busy thinking about the small parts that you, you miss the, yeah. the large part. But the whole of a health service, think about, if I think about the, the, the National Health Service in, in the United Kingdom, it's kind of set up to be 
generic. Mm. So you can even see that in relation to the way in which spirituality works itself out. So spirituality is roughly defined as a search for meaning and purpose and value and hope, and for some people, God. Now, why is that? Well, it's because there's no room for particularity in a, in a generic healthcare system. So you can't have a spirituality that works for only one person. It has to work for everybody. You can't have an antibiotic that only works for one person. It has to work for everybody. <laughs> totally. And so, so even something like spirituality, which in principle should be pushing into your, the depths of your meaning and purpose and the things, doesn't really function that way because the, the institution says, you can ask this question, but not this question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there is that kind of thinness in the way that people become uh, in terms of the way that we describe and interact with them, which is called by that, at least partly by that inherent spirituality within the system, but also by that, that tendency to, to break things down and to focus on bits rather than holes. And so if you come in and say it, you know, yes, focus on the bits rather than the holes. Yes, exactly. Exactly right. So if you come in yeah. and say, I, I, I'm feeling a bit vulnerable today um, because you know, something yeah. happened at home. So what? <laughs> That's <laughs> not actually on the pain scale. <laughs> so if you could make it a one through 10 number, yeah. that'd be great. I don't mean people do it deliberately, but you can yeah. get a culture where, where that becomes the norm. Yeah. And that, that makes it very difficult to become vulnerable in that yeah. situation. Because you're uncertain about what kind of response you get. I used to dress up like I was going for a job interview every time because that is the person that was taken seriously. That's the person who I I could tell only later that I was auditioning for care because it had gone so badly for so long. But I still really struggle not to find like the nearest structured blazer if I'm anywhere near a hospital Uh (laughs) because it, um, it was, it did seem to profession by profession. There was a different sense of whether the whole, like I'm, obviously a huge fan of nurses. Yes. Um, but the ability to contextualize yeah. your diagnosis and your care and your treatment seems like that is work that is yeah. false to some people and not others, I it's, suppose. It's, yeah, that's tricky because there's a, even within nursing, there's a, there's a difference between uh, the context you're nursing. So my wife's a nurse, right? Yeah. So she's a, a registered general nurse, uh, or as she would put it, a real nurse. Right. And I was a, a mental health nurse. And the difference between the two of us is that I would sit and speak to people all day long mm. and she would get things done. <laughs> and th- that's kind of true. Like, um, But within mental health, you have to look at the whole person because the whole person is, is what is brought to you, unless you get caught up in diagnosis and, and that allows you to, to lose your focus. So that context really opens itself up to presence and to belonging and to a holistic understanding. Whereas if you're in a busy acute ward yeah. where you have a series of tasks to do, it's not so easy to, to yeah. be that kind of, that kind of to, to create a space of, of belonging. Yeah. Even if that space is you, yeah. it's, it's, it's just not so straightforward. Do you think the, I just remember we talked to Victoria Sweet, her lovely book on um, slow and fast medicine. Oh yeah. You have good arguments about speed, about the speed at which love can operate. Yes. I wondered if you wouldn't mind first telling me a bit about that, and second, whether you think maybe the speed of love is just perhaps harder to duplicate in a healthcare scenario. Yeah, well, I've been thinking about that recently. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the idea that you're talking about comes from uh, the Japanese theologian Kasuka Kiyama and his idea of the three mile an hour God. And so he, he's, the way that it runs with him, he says, the average speed that a human being walks at is three miles per hour. 
So Jesus, who is God, walks at three miles per hour. God, who is love, walks at three miles per hour. Love has a speed, mm. and it's a slow speed. Love. And it's, what he's pushing us to do is to recognise that if you're going to love somebody, then you need to slow down and take time with them and spend time in that sense. Uh, and it's very difficult to do that because this, the natural speed of healthcare is fast. And so I, I remember talking to somebody from Duke, actually, who's a physician, and uh, we were talking about the three mile an hour ago, and he said, well, this place makes me walk at nine miles an hour minimum. <laughs> and I said to him, well, if you're walking at nine miles an hour and Jesus is walking at three miles an hour, so who's following who? It's, it's, quite, it's, a, it's a difficult challenge. But then I'm going to think it's an easy challenge to, to, to do that because obviously the system is uh-huh. oppressive. But then I, I did some work in Australia during the pandemic, which is before the pandemic, on belonging and care of presence. Uh, one of the problems that, in care of the elderly was that people had tended to be absent from a situation. So they'd be, be carrying out care with somebody with dementia, for example, but they'd be talking over them and, and they'd be looking at their phones. And eventually you have a culture of absence where things yeah. maybe get done badly, but people are absent. And I've been thinking about how do you avoid a culture of absence? Or how does my nine mile an hour physician get out of that nine mile an hour slot? Yeah. And, and so, I've written about this thing called uh, micro-breaks, right? Micro-breaks occur when you um, step outside of a situation, just for a, two or three minutes, recalibrate and go back in. Because when you back, go back into that situation, you've had a different perspective. Mm-hmm. When you're in there, you're just lost in, in the slipstream of that. It. Exactly, but yeah. simply stepping out and stepping back uh, gives you that space. And it's good for the mental health of mm-hmm. the, the worker and it's good for the, the, the carer. And it struck me that that's, there's something similar in that dynamic to what God talks about Sabbath. Mm-hmm. You know, when the, the people of Israel are oppressed and going through all this difficulty, Jesus says, take a break. Think about me, remember me, yeah. and then you go back into your, your, yeah. your work. So it's like there's these little Sabbath moments yeah. that a professional or anybody can, can take just to step out and step out. That's the beginning of a movement towards a three mile an hour God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me think so. Um, I only recently learned anything about basketball this year and I was mm-hmm. over at our stadium, which people have many feelings about. But they have a hype room, which is a small space that they get into that has all of this with this it's the architecture of excitement. It is motivational. It is small. It duplicates the theater of life that they will experience right. when they rush out there. So when you describe that, I want like the opposite of the hype room. <laughs> I want to like, I want the micro break room. I want the place designed to like not make me want to like run out yelling, are you ready for this? It makes me want to like be like, I'm not ready for this. I'm taking it down. Exactly. <laughs> I, I watched the Super Bowl last night. No idea what was going on. When people can't tell the story of who they were, because we lose things all the time, you have some lovely advice from experiences of fr- and friends of how to perhaps not always do the thing that at least I want to do, which is every time I've lost something, all I want to do is go back to the person that I was. I have like a stronger, better, faster, 
And it's never, it, at least for me, it's not, it's just genuinely not possible. But then it's hard to sort of grieve the limitations that mm. I now have to live with. You had a lovely friend who gave herself a living funeral. Am I remembering oh, yes. that right? Yes. Can you tell me that story? Yeah, Tonya. Yes, she had a, she was involved with a serious uh, motor accident and she ended up getting uh, brain damage, which changed certain aspects of her personality. Mm. And sometimes quite straightforward things like she didn't like the clothes that she used to like, she didn't like the smell she was like. So, yeah. Uh, the various things that made her a sense that she was alienated from herself and her, obviously our friends felt similar. So the way that she coped with it was twofold. She went through therapy and so she was able to kind of realign certain things in her life through therapy. But she recognised there was a significant rift between who she had been and who she was now. And so she got together with her pastor and they decided to create this uh, funeral service, which they call the living funeral, i.e. a way of grieving for somebody who's gone, mm. but who also is still alive. Uh, and it's very beautiful, the imagery that she used. She said, I gathered my friends and family around, we went down beside a river, uh, and she gave everybody a handful of rose petals. And what happened was that they told stories. So they would tell stories about how she had been, how she was, just create this kind of narrative fabric um, including her own story, and then tell stories of how she is now. Yeah. And so the, that, like, the, the schism between these two things was, had a narrative bridge. And then they, uh, at the given time, they would put the, they put the uh, rose petals into the water and watch them as they moved down and disappeared out of sight. Yeah. And that was to symbolise her old life yeah. so that they could come back in to this new life and readjust to the way that she was and see what that looked like. I did something like that yesterday, entirely inspired by the Haitian there be a ritual around letting something go. But I was moving out of my home where I'd almost, where I had lived and almost died. And leaving it felt so odd because mm -hmm. it was, it had been like every cupboard moving was full of medical supplies and yeah. every one room was like, this is where I would quietly give myself these needles and then go take my son out of his crib, but really be hiding my chemotherapy pack. And like, there was just so many parts of it that were like, yeah. like such a heartbreaker. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I was also, but it's also the home I brought my son home to and the place where I used to play this yeah. awful video game called Rock Band, where you're giving people plastic instruments. And I quite like that. It was really mm -hmm. fun. And there's no modern version. Yeah, and I feel like we awful. should bring it back. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I told uh, my best friend, Catherine, I'm really, uh, I'm never going to be that person again, and I don't want to skip it. Yeah. Uh, so she drove me over. She's also an ordained pastor because Presbyterian. You guys are very, uh, uh -huh. There's a key. you're good with your rituals. And uh, she, um, all of a sudden, while we were driving over, she pulled very suddenly over to the side of the road, got out took out a pair of bolt cutters, disappeared into the woods, <laughs> came back with two enormous boughs of pine, right. just put them in the car, and then drove on as if, as if this were right. Sunday. And uh, we went into the house and she had a bucket of water and she's like, all right, let's do it. And we went room by room and told every hard, terrible story of the thing that had been. Yeah. And then blessed the person who we hoped would come after. Yeah. 
and then the person that we hope I might yet be. Yeah. And I have to say, it's like grieving the past person, I think is such a lovely way of, um, and especially when someone else is there to tell the story of you, because you're right. We don't remember. No, I mean, I only remembered half of it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that kind of ritual is really important because it's like a bridge between the past and the present. And yeah. We should ritualize things more, I think. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of things. And I oftentimes think that in relation to something like, uh, like dementia, that, that, that the, the movements through the different phases is really complicated and difficult. Yeah. And ritualizing that, these movements could be really helpful for just getting you from one space to the next space. Yeah. It's complicated. So I think that's a great story. And do you feel better for it? I do. Yeah. I do. I feel a bit wrung out, but I can't, uh, I think it's hard to make room for a new story if I haven't had a minute to grieve the old one, Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Because I would have kept it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. People, it's, it's, I just find it so much easier to on to the next, yeah. if the next thing is always yeah. unambiguously good, yeah. fun, bigger, better. Uh, it's usually just different. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Do you think in creating new kinds of belonging, do you think it helped your friend then be able to find ways to bring old friends along with her and then be able to be like, and this is who I am now? Like it reinscribes belonging if we can grieve the past it self? Might do. It really depends yeah. on whether you like the people you used to like, they like you, you know, because there are changes. Like, That's right. And so you, you can go through this. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I have to speak to her, I don't know whether, but you can go through this process and discover that the old friends that you had are maybe not the friends that you want to have now. And that's another source of grief, but maybe that's just the process of, of moving on, That to be honest enough to recognize that some things that were are just not, mm. you know. Which, I mean, that's a quite difficult thing. Like, I mean, it's very difficult for friends and stuff. Like, but I, I guess it's just part of that healing process, difficult as it is. Mm-hmm. Whether you're someone who's suffering or someone who's around suffering, do you have any advice for people who want to create a deeper sense of um, belonging in those spaces? In relation to suffering? <laughs> yeah. Just whether you're the the person going through it or the person around the person going through it. Yeah. I always think that that can often be the one of the loneliest places to be. Yeah, I think that's certainly right. I mean, for people going through suffering, it, it, it is a profoundly painful experience. It's a profoundly alienating experience. Yeah. Uh, because you, you lose a sense of... Uh, the security of the way that life is yeah. in life, you recognize that the things that you used to use to cope with that are no longer available to you. So therefore, yeah. it's isolated. And if that's combined with pain, then you, you do have a difficulty because pain is uh, the enemy of community because it, 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 it blocks you from yourself. It blocks you from your neighbor. It blocks you from God. Uh, and so you f- can find yourself in a in a horrible space. I and mean, the last thing you want is somebody to say, "I know how you feel," because clearly like, you don't know how do you feel. You, you know who you are. Do you really? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah. So in that context, uh, pain becomes, if you like, a spiritual issue. Jesus says, "The love of the the, 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 the some of the law and the prophets is to love God, love neighbor, and self." Pain can destroy all of that stuff because you you lose your sense of who God is. You lose your sense of who your neighbor is. 
and all you can feel is, is, is the pain within yourself. Yeah. And so in that context, you need medics, strangely enough, at a spiritual level, to give you medication that mm -hmm. can reconnect you in that way. Mm -hmm. And so there is a kind of interesting um, collaboration between the, the medical and the spiritual in the context of suffering and deep, deep pain. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that there's something important in there, that to be released from pain is to be released to reconnect yeah. with, your, with, with God, self and others. Like. Um, for people who are, are, are alongside people who are suffering, uh, that can be equally as, as difficult and equally as, as alienating for, for, for various re reasons, because you just have no control over yes. that. And yes. to watch somebody in that situation who is, is uh, struggling, who is in pain, and to be able to do absolutely nothing is painful <laughs> and psychologically painful. Like, and to accompany somebody in that is, is really, really stressful. Um, because in reality, very often, you know, uh, emotions transfer. So if you're, you know, if you're with somebody who's really, really anxious, chances are you'll leave that, you'll feel yourself really, really anxious. If you're with somebody who's suffering and going through that anxiety attention, you'll go away with that. So from the perspective of somebody who's uh, walking alongside somebody who's suffering, you need to get rid of that. You need to have a friend or you need to have somebody who you can really be honest with, who you really can lament with. I mean, one of the reasons why the lament psalms are so, so powerful is because they're, they're so cathartic. Yeah. They, just help, they just get rid of that stuff. Um, and you need that. You need somebody or, or some group of people that you can be honest with. And yeah. you, so I, I think... From the church's perspective, reclaiming lamentation is, is profoundly important. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as, not just in the time of crisis, but we need to get into the habit of practicing laments. I mean, like, there's plenty of things in the world to lament about. So it's not like we've <laughs> nothing to practice on. Um, but for somebody in that situation of accompaniment, that's, I think that's really, really important. Yeah. John, you always give me new language for the withness feeling, the like being alongside. Suffering not as an aberration, incompleteness not as an aberration, but as part of um, that's that. Then in the middle of it, we are all somehow very deeply good, even if we, uh, most of it yeah. is not uh, affirmed by our culture as yeah. independent, perfect, in control. And yeah. I always uh, walk away from a book, and now two chances to be with you feeling like a, more of a person. So thank right. you so much for doing this with me. Yeah. What a joy. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Being with John is so funny. I can just feel my heart rate slow. <laughs> it's the nicest feeling. He has this way of really just kind of locking in. And listening to him describe it, that slow, intentional practice of presence, it really reminds me of my friend Meg. I lucked out when I walked into the infusion center for my very first chemotherapy, and a Meg came into my life. She looks like this little baby Anne Hathaway, and she was, you know, assigned to me as my infusion nurse, but very, very quickly became my friend. During my hours and hours just sitting there, hooked up to something, she became the best part of every worst day. So, my loves, I know that so many of you do that for people. You show up, 
You slow down for a minute. You pause between all the things you really could be doing. So, to you, to Meg, to all the Megs, you beautiful creatures, thank you for caring when you didn't have to. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for remembering us in all our particularities. You guys are for the win. So I thought maybe we could do a little blessing to close about all you who care and keep caring about strangers. All right, here we go. Bless those who give their time in service of people who might not even deserve it. What a waste. That wasn't going to get you a nicer apartment. What if that patient took unnecessary risks or was selfish or was never going to say thank you? You could have been protecting yourself or, God forbid, sleeping through the night. Bless you who listen to long, winding stories from lonely hearts instead of rushing off to more interesting friends. You picked boredom or patience instead of the warmth of being known. That was your time and you're never going to get it back. (laughs) Bless those who loved people who weren't grateful, the sick who endangered your health, the deeply boring who know you have things to do. Loving people can be the most meaningful thing in the world, but it can also be hard and scary and boring and disgusting or sad or anxiety-inducing with zero overtime. Thank you to all those who make these bad investments, those acts of love that are not going to add up to success in the way that the world sees it. You, my darling, are the very definition of love. This episode of the Everything Happens podcast was made possible because of our generous partners, Lily Endowment, the Duke Endowment, Duke Divinity School, and Leadership Education. And of course, nothing is possible without the wisdom and expertise of my absolutely fabulous team. Jessica Ritchie, my heart, I love you. Harriet Putman, Keith Weston, Gwen Higginbotham, Brenda Thompson, Hope Anderson, Jeb Burt, and Catherine Smith. This really is my very favorite kind of group project. So if you want to know what else we're up to, head over to katebowler.com newsletter so you don't miss a thing. I would really love to hear what you thought about this episode. Would you consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify? It means a ton to us when we hear what you liked or who you want to hear in conversation next. Also, we really love hearing your voice. Feel free to leave us a voicemail. We might even use it on the air. So call us at 919-322-8731. All right, lovelies, I'll talk to you next week. But in the meantime, come find me online at Kate C. Bowler. This is Everything Happens with me, Kate Bowler. Bowler.